I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part one of Clear Shakespeare Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, if people have seen one play by Shakespeare, it's probably a Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, one of the reasons for this is that it's a very popular choice for high schools and colleges to perform, in part because it has that supernatural stuff in it, in part because it has multiple good roles for women, which, to be honest, not all of Shakespeare's plays do. So chances are pretty good you've seen a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. But as always, the goal of this podcast is to step back from that famousness as much as we can, dig ourselves deep into the minutiae of the words themselves, and use that to come at the play really fresh. Now, if you want more on the podcast, I strongly encourage you to listen to the introduction to this whole series if you haven't already. But the short version is this. We're trying to make Shakespeare's plays immediate and dramatic and personal again. After so many centuries of cultural ubiquity and fame have made that job difficult. And in order to do that, we need to get back to that moment-to-moment language. Now, in this podcast, I'm going to focus mainly on what's being said. So what the words mean and also how it's being said. So the kind of poetic or writerly techniques, the sounds of the words. Because after all, that what and how are the building blocks of all language, and especially poetic language. Crazy Ezra Pound said this thing that I just love about poetry. He says, poetry is a centaur. The thinking, word-arranging, clarifying faculty must move and leap with the energizing, sentient, musical faculties. So in that analogy, you can think about the rational side, the what, as the human head of the centaur, the brain, in other words, the thinky parts. And you can think about the sound of the language as the horse butt section. In other words, the animal side that doesn't think too much, the galloping part. And the great point he makes is that the two halves of the centaur are inseparably joined. So talking about one without talking about the other makes no sense. The animal would die. So I'm mostly interested in this what and how, but on occasion I'll suggest my own opinion about the why. In other words, why characters are choosing to say what they're saying at the moment they're saying it. But really, once you know the what and how, I hope you'll take on the why yourself. The goal here is just to find a personal meaning for you, just like you would for most books you read or plays that you see or act in. And I can't do that for you. I'm not you. I don't know what's going to jump out and grab you. If you're acting in this play, these have to be the words that you would say in exactly the way you would say them. They have to become completely yours instead of the kind of flat, generic way they usually get performed. That why is the work that readers and performers do. It's making specific choices based on specific words. And I'm not going to break this up by long speeches or even by verse lines, which is the standard way to do it, but by complete thoughts. And sometimes these thoughts are going to end in the middle of a verse line. And I know that isn't always cool with the Shakespeare police, but we're hunting for meaning. And it's vital that you be able to follow the thought process of these characters, because there really isn't much else in these plays. So I'm going to say all the way through a thought, go over any of that what and how, and I'll just move on to the next thought. Cool, got it? Okay, before we start on A Midsummer Night's Dream, just a little bit of background about this play. Now, as you may know, most of Shakespeare's plots are straight up ripped off from other sources, but actually a lot of A Midsummer Night's Dream is pretty original. That makes it very rare. Uh, The Tempest is mostly original, maybe Love's Labor's Lost, but really not that much else. Instead, this play is kind of a crazy quilt of different styles, mythologies, literary influences. There's a little material in the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer that influences the Theseus and Hippolyta framing device at the beginning and end of the play. There may be some influence in a wedding ode written around the same time as this play by the great poet Edmund Spencer. 
And obviously there's a lot of sort of country traditions and even pre-Christian traditions from the British Isles. All that stuff about the May Day and Midsummer celebrations and these huge folk traditions of supernatural beings. But the biggest influence by far is a work called The Metamorphoses by a Roman poet named Ovid. And the best translation for that title, as you may have guessed, is The Book of Transformations. Now, Ovid lived in the overlap between B.C. and A.D., around the time of Jesus, and he collected hundreds and hundreds of Greek and Roman myths into this epic series called The Metamorphoses. And as you may have guessed, the theme that connects all of these myths is transformation. And often it's transformations of people into animals or plants. And Shakespeare's great realization with this play is that many of those stories are also stories of love. So in a sense, love itself is a kind of transformation. Now, metamorphoses fell out of favor for a little while when the Roman Empire turned Christian, because obviously transformation is kind of at the center of Christianity, and you don't want all these pagan transformation narratives competing with your new Christian one. But it came back with a vengeance in the late medieval times and into the Renaissance. The Renaissance, after all, is literally the rebirth of the classical tradition. And it has a huge influence on writers like Chaucer and Spencer and Shakespeare. There's actually a very influential translation into English in 1567, just a few years after Shakespeare's born. Though it's possible Shakespeare had a little Latin from school, he may have read it in the original too. And how do we know this? Because almost every one of the many, many mythological references in this play comes from metamorphoses, including the famous one, Pyramus and Thisbe, that forms the play in Act 5. And not only that, Shakespeare basically steals his master metaphor from Ovid. Transformation is central to the plot and the themes of this play. And believe me, I'll be pointing out all these references as we get to them. You're going to get so sick of Ovid, I cannot tell you. Now, A Midsummer Night's Dream was first printed in quarto form, which was kind of the equivalent of the paperback, in 1600, and it's reprinted in a very, very similar text, what's called the second quarto in 1619, after Shakespeare dies, and then finally it's printed in the first folio, which is sort of the big fancy coffee table version and kind of the authoritative text of a lot of these plays, in 1623. And the text that shows up in the first folio is probably mostly based on that first quarto publication, which leads you to believe it was a pretty accurate text, but it has some annotations from what might have been the prompt book they used to put on the play in the playhouse. Mercifully for us, unlike a play like Hamlet, the text of Midsummer is mostly pretty consistent across these available texts, so you're not going to have like three different versions competing too much. Now, finding an exact date for this play is a lot harder. The first mention of it is in this invaluable book by a minister named Francis Mears, and all he does is list all the plays by Shakespeare that existed in 1598. Midsummer is one of those plays, so we know it existed by 1598. Also, this mysterious play called Love's Labors One, which may have been Much Ado About Nothing, and may have been a magical lost play that no one has ever found. In this listing, Francis Mears is also the first person to make what is now a common error on the title. He calls it a Midsummer's Night Dream. What is a night dream, anyway? But you'll hear that all the time. Repeat after me. Midsummer Night's Dream. The dream of a midsummer night. Doesn't that sound great? As for when exactly it premiered, one way to date it is by the other works that it resembles stylistically. So it's very close in style to Love's Labor's Lost, and especially to these two plays, Richard II and Romeo and Juliet. They both feature tons of iambic pentameter verse and pretty regular verse, lots of rhyme, which is unusual in the later plays, and just really dense poetic language in general. These are language-drunk plays. And these plays are usually dated in the 1594, 1595, 1596 window, so still relatively early in Shakespeare's career. And I think this stretch of plays really marks when Shakespeare starts to round into form as a playwright. He has a command of his own poetic style, and he's starting to get a really mature sense of how to structure scenes and plots. Because Lord knows Midsummer Night's Dream is an incredibly intricately plotted play. Now that first quarto, published in 1600, it says on the cover that the play has been sundry times publicly acted. 
Uh, presumably, this is by Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, at the main theater they used, called The Theater. Remember, this is still years before the Globe Theater is built. But there's some real debate about the first performance of this play. And that's because the play is built around the frame of a nobleman's wedding, the wedding of Theseus and Hippolyta. And many scholars have taken that structure and theorized that it was originally written for an Elizabethan noble wedding, maybe a relative of the queen. Because you look at Act 5, and it's designed as a pure wedding entertainment. Literally, they are entertaining the noble couple at their wedding. You could almost say that the whole play might serve the purpose that the Pyramus and Thisbe play does within the play itself, which is to fill the time in between dinner and bedtime the night of a wedding. But this is all just speculation. We have no proof of this supposed royal wedding. Now, as I said earlier, this is one of Shakespeare's most frequently performed plays. In part, that's because it's one of his shortest plays. In part, it's because of that incredible language. But I think the main reason it's been so popular over the years is spectacle. It is an absolute playground for designers. And productions like to really pull out all the stops to create this fairy world. One thing to know is that in its early performance history, it was often performed in pieces. It has those three or four different strands. So you could just take out the fairies and do a play with them, or just take out the lovers and do a play with them, or just take out the mechanicals, the people who act out Pyramus and Thisbe, and make a little playlet out of that. And that last one was especially useful when plays were banned under the Puritans in the 1650s in England. They took out Pyramus and Thisbe, and they performed it as what's called a droll or an entertainment. And because it wasn't technically a full play, they totally skated by. Now, as soon as they restored the monarchy and reopened the theaters, it was one of the first plays to come back. This is also the era that produces one of my favorite theater reviews of anything ever, in the diary of the famous Samuel Pepys. So he goes to see a production in September of 1662, and he writes in his diary when he gets home, We saw Midsummer Night's Dream, which I had never seen before, nor shall ever again, for it is the most insipid, ridiculous play that ever I saw in my life. I saw, I confess, some good dancing and some handsome women, which was all my pleasure. Oh, that is a sick burn as ever, peeps. Now, I don't blame him. Before this point, there were no women acting in the English theater, so good dancing and handsome women are a pretty good reason to go to see a play. But I feel like it's a little better than he's giving it credit for. And it's really in the Victorian era that this play blows up. When they were fond of these massively over-designed and these incredibly romantic settings, and they would have productions with dozens and dozens of costumed fairy extras, you know, 20-minute song and dance numbers, and most famously, a production with real grass and rabbits on stage, people could not get over the rabbits. This is also the period that gives us another piece of art that's really strongly associated with this play. The German composer Felix Mendelssohn writes incidental music for a production in the 1840s, and that quickly becomes widespread. In fact, the final wedding march from his incidental music is still used in weddings over the world. You'll recognize it. Go on YouTube. And for a while, this Mendelssohn music became totally ubiquitous in productions everywhere. And really, despite that, it's still amazing music. It works incredibly well with the play, and it works well on its own. So there's a real backlog of these huge, over-designed Victorian Midsummer Night's Dream productions. And maybe as a result, the best versions from the 20th and 21st centuries are kind of a backlash against that over-design. One of my favorites is by this incredibly underappreciated theater maker named Harley Granville Barker. He was a director and a critic and an actor and a playwright. And he made a production in 1914 that cut all that stuff out. He just used curtains. He used designed curtains instead of all the rabbits and such. And he put the fairies in these kind of weirdo, vaguely Asian costumes. But it made them strange again, instead of just people in bad wings. And then there was another production that went even farther than that. And this is maybe the most famous Shakespeare production of the 20th century, which is a production in 1970 at the Royal Shakespeare Company, directed by Peter Brook. And it puts the whole thing in a plain white box. So not even the pretty curtains. No rabbit was found within a thousand miles of this production. And the fairies are on trapezes, so they sort of float above the stage. 
And the effect it had was to focus the play back onto its language, which again is sort of the most special thing about it. Now, of course, those productions aren't running anymore, so you can't see them, but you can see some film versions. And there's a lot of versions of this play. I think in part because supernatural stuff works really well on film and sort of world building works well on film. You can actually put these people in a forest. There's a movie from 1935, this sort of all-star Hollywood production, staged by the German theater director Max Reinhardt, and it has some pretty incredible design. It's really worth seeing. It also has an incredibly over-the-top performance by Mickey Rooney as Puck when he's about 15 years old, but I think it's worth it mostly for Jimmy Cagney, who's known as this gangster actor, but he's kind of outrageously good as Bottom. He has all the bravado you'd want. There's another movie from 1968 that really features most of that great generation of British actors. It has Ian Holm and Diana Rigg and Helen Mirren and David Warner and Ian Richardson and especially Judi Dench, who, if this is your idea of a good time, spends the whole thing naked and painted green. It's not wonderful as a movie, but it has some incredible acting. The one you might be able to find most easily is a movie version from 1999 that I think is actually pretty lousy, mostly because Kevin Klein, who plays Bottom, thinks he is a tragic hero. It is the most serious comedy you have ever seen. There's also a few other things worth tracking down, either if you can find them on video or on the internet. You can see just a single scene with the amazing actor Charles Lawton playing Bottom. He's kind of an all-time great, and you'd like to see the whole thing. There's a 1996 TV version that was based on an RSC production directed by Adrian Noble. It's a decent enough production. It's mostly notable for this really weird and different and cool design. There's a lot of umbrellas involved for some reason. You may also be able to find film of Julie Tamer's 2014 production, which features her sort of typically inventive and magical design. Hell, you can even find a production on the internet with Benny Hill, of all people, as bottom. The other thing to look out for is that there are tons of operas and ballets and visual art and music all based on this play. It's incredibly fertile as a source of inspiration to other artists. So that's just a little background on the play. If you enjoy this podcast, before we start in on the text, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to support this podcast. It takes a ton of time for research, and I'd really appreciate anything you could give to make it possible. Thanks a lot. Also, please follow the Clear Shakespeare podcast on iTunes and leave a review if you can. It would really help. So back to the play. Grab your copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream, open to Act 1, Scene 1, and we'll begin. And the first people on stage are Theseus and Hippolyta. And who are they? Well, Theseus is a legendary hero from Greek mythology. And of course, he shows up in Ovid's Metamorphoses, though not with Hippolyta. And Hippolyta is an Amazon queen. So this is a little bit of fan fiction by Shakespeare, putting together these mythological characters on his own. And the first thing Theseus says is, Now, fair Hippolyta, our nuptial hour draws on apace. And immediately we know the situation, because nuptial hour means the time to be married. So their wedding time draws on, in other words, approaches apace quickly. He says, Four happy days bring in another moon. So how apace is it drawing on? It's in four days. And this is one of the most misunderstood words in Shakespeare, just because the meaning has changed in 400 years. Happy doesn't mean joyful. It means lucky or fortunate. So those four fortunate days are bringing in another moon. In other words, a new moon. So presumably, when the moon disappears, they're going to get married. Okay, four days, not so bad. But he says, but oh, methinks how slow this old moon wanes. Methinks doesn't just mean... I think. It means it seems to me. How slow this old moon wanes. We talk about the moon waxing and waning. So waxing means to grow bigger and waning means it shrinks down to nothing. So it's shrinking very slowly. And just listen to the sound of this language. It's full of those long O sounds. Oh, how slow, old. He's like a kid waiting for dessert. He says, she lingers my desires like to a stepdame or a dowager long withering out a young man's revenue. So she here is the moon. 
You're going to see the moon all over this play. You better get used to her. She lingers my desires. It's a pretty creative verb. It means she puts off my desires or she delays them. And remember, at this time, you didn't have sex before you were married. So his desires are literally desires. He doesn't just want to be married to her. He wants to be married to her. So she puts them off like to a stepdame or a dowager. A stepdame is a stepmother, and a dowager is a widow who inherited some property or title from her late husband. Like that word dower. So this stepdame or dowager is long withering out. Withering out means that she's dwindling. She's spending it. She's making it less. A young man's revenue. And revenue means income like it does for us, but what it probably means even more is inheritance. Because remember, the oldest son got his father's property when his father died, unless his mother or his stepmother or some other person had the right to use it until she died. So maybe dad married a young stepmother and gave her the money, and now this young man is waiting for her to die so that he'll finally get the money that's owed to him. But meanwhile, she's just spending it and spending it, so there's less for him to inherit. And in this metaphor, the stepmother or the dowager that isn't dying soon enough is the moon, and that revenue, that inheritance, is Hippolyta. Or really, sexual access to Hippolyta. And Hippolyta's like, calm down, dude. She says, four days will quickly steep themselves in night. Steep is a really interesting verb choice here, because it doesn't just mean while away. Steep means to dip or bathe, like you steep tea in hot water. So the days are going to bathe themselves in the night. And what about the nights? Four nights will quickly dream away the time. And there's that word dream. When you actually think about it, A Midsummer Night's Dream is a very strange name for a play. You might call it A Midsummer Night's Play. But no, this whole play is a dream. So her image is that the nights themselves are going to dream themselves away. And that's how the day and night are going to pass. And then the moon, like to a silver bow new bent in heaven, shall behold the night of our solemnities. So that's a pretty common image, the moon as a silver bow, as in bow and arrow. Keep in mind also she's an Amazon warrior, so it's exactly the right image for her to choose. And the bow is new bent in heaven. And bent means pulled back. So the bow of the moon has the crescent shape. Some texts, by the way, say now bent in heaven, but it's really a judgment call. And what's the moon going to do? It's going to behold the night of our solemnities. Solemnities means celebration of marriage. You've probably heard that word solemnize a ceremony, solemnize a wedding. Not solemn like serious. And notice this as well. They're getting married at night. So Theseus and Hippolyta have just set a clock running for the end of the play. Four days, give or take. And before we go on, just look at their two speeches that open the play. Watch how his language is different than her language. And specifically, look at the ends of his verse lines compared to the ends of her verse lines. He uses a lot of this thing called enjambment, which is where there's no break whatsoever at the end of a line. It just goes on into the next line. Our nuptial hour draws on apace. Happy days bring in another moon. How slow this old moon wanes. My desires like to a stepdame or a dowager long withering out a young man's revenue. There's no periods, no commas, no semicolons, nothing. And it really gives you that idea of falling over, desiring, stretching out. And meanwhile, her first two lines are, four days will quickly steep themselves in night, end of line. Four nights will quickly dream away the time, end of line. It's a little bit of his chaos versus her order. So she's calmed him down for now. And he says, go, Philostrate, stir up the Athenian youth to merriments. So who is this Philostrate or Philostrate? It comes from the Greek word for lover of battle. If you know that Greek play Lysistrata or Lysistrata, that strata comes from the same root, battle. Kind of a funny name for a guy who organizes plays for the Duke, but whatever. So he turns to this assistant of his and says, stir up the Athenian youth to merriments. So stir them up means provoke them, the youth of our city, Athens. So we're definitely in Greek mythology here. He wants Philostrate to stir them up to merriments, to these joyful celebrations. And he continues in that same vein. Awake the pert and nimble spirit of mirth. Mirth is merrymaking. It's that same root as merriments. And he wants Philostrate to awake the pert and nimble spirit of mirth. 
Shepherd means lively or quick. But notice he doesn't use that verb stir up again. He says awake, which is a really interesting word choice in a play about dreams. So he goes on, turn melancholy forth to funerals. So if mirth is going to be awakened, what's going to happen to melancholy, the opposite? Well, we're going to turn it forth. In other words, we're going to cast it out or send it over to funerals. So we're all mirth, no melancholy. Get it out of town. Go hang out with your friend funeral. And you can hear that alliteration, that double F sound of forth to funerals. There's going to be a lot of that in this play because it's so poetic. So we don't need melancholy. The pale companion is not for our pomp. So melancholy can go hang out with funerals. It's not for our pomp. Pomp being our ceremony or procession, the wedding. And what does he call melancholy? The pale companion. I mean, that's an incredible image for melancholy. If you've ever been depressed, the pale companion is almost perfect because it's that image of a silent, pale guy who's just always hanging out with you. Companion, obviously, is someone who spends time with you, but it can also be used in a sort of derogatory way, like guy or fella. And notice, by the way, that Hippolyta has totally transformed his language. His last four lines, they are, as they say, end-stopped. One thought per line. So Philostrate goes out to work on his stirring up the Athenian youth, and then Theseus turns to his bride-to-be. He says, Hippolyta, I wooed thee with my sword, and won thy love, doing thee injuries. But I will wed thee in another key, with pomp, with triumph, and with reveling. So apparently this wasn't just a love story. Maybe he went to the Amazon kingdom and tried to conquer it. I've even seen some productions that suggest that he's marrying her against her will. But that's a pretty dark conclusion to jump to. But even if they are very much in love now, to say that he won her love doing her injuries is kind of messed up and also sort of a perfect metaphor for what comes after in this play. But he says, I will wed thee in another key. So key can be a musical term like C major, D minor. So yeah, I kind of won your love in D minor, but now I'm going to marry you in C major. But key can also be a tone of voice. So I won you with a harsh tone of voice, but I'm going to marry you in a happy tone of voice. With pomp, that word he just used in the previous speech, ceremony procession, with triumph. A triumph is like a public festivity, like when a conquering hero would drive through town and people would celebrate him. And with reveling. Reveling is celebration or partying. And look at the verbs in this speech. He wooed her, he won her, and now he's going to wed her. No accident they're all three W words. It gives a real acceleration to this speech. And it ends with three kinds of celebration, pomp, triumph, and reveling. So that's setting up the frame of the play. We know there's going to be a royal wedding in four days, go. But now here comes the main plot. And actually, it's a kind of minor plot compared to, say, a legendary warrior duke marrying the queen of the Amazons. This guy Aegeus comes in and says, Happy be Theseus, our renowned duke. Remember, happy means fortunate. So he's saying to Theseus, may you be fortunate in the future, our renowned duke, renowned for his acts of valor in foreign countries and all that. And this may also just be sort of a generic greeting to the duke. And Theseus says, thanks, good Aegeus. What's the news with thee? So he knows this guy. He must be an important person in Athens. So what's the news with Aegeus? Well, it's some exposition. He says, full of vexation come I with complaint against my child, my daughter Hermia. Oh, okay, this sounds important. Vexation isn't anger, which is how we might use it. It's turmoil, it's agitation, it's even grief. And Aegeus is full of it. And why is he so worked up? Because he's coming with a complaint. Not like, why isn't my cereal ready? No, a complaint is a formal grievance you bring to the authorities. And not just a complaint, it's against his child, his daughter Hermia. Notice also that the sound of the language gives you that agitation. Normally, a straight-up iambic pentameter line, of which there are many in this play, would start full of vexation. But you don't say it that way. You say full of vexation. So there's that hard stress on the first syllable, full, which rockets you into that agitation. And why is he bringing this complaint? He turns to another character on stage and says, stand forth, Demetrius. Stand forth means come forward. Okay, we know this guy's name is Demetrius. And he turns back to Theseus. He says, my noble lord, 
this man hath my consent to marry her. Oh, okay, in a time when it was still incredibly important for the father to consent to a marriage, this is the person who he's agreed to, Demetrius. And here's the wrinkle. He says, stand forth Lysander. Now this guy Lysander comes forward, and he says to Theseus, and my gracious duke, this man hath bewitched the bosom of my child. Gracious means showing favor, but grace is generally something that God provides. So this is a moment of extreme reverence and politeness. This is going to be important. My gracious duke, this man hath bewitched the bosom of my child. Not her bosom in our modern sense, though he may have done that as well. This refers to what is inside her chest, her heart. Not just won her heart, bewitched it. And you get the strength of that also from the sound of the language. Bewitched the bosom, that double B sound. You may have noticed, by the way, if you were paying attention to your scansion, which why wouldn't you be, there's an extra syllable in that line. Some texts just say, this hath bewitched the bosom of my child, which is better iambic pentameter, and the man has to be implied. So the comparison here is against the one who has his consent to marry his daughter and the one who's bewitched his daughter's heart. Like he's cast a spell on her. This is going to be important later when actual spells are cast. So he elaborates on this bewitching. He says, Thou, thou, Lysander, thou hast given her rhymes and interchanged love tokens with my child. Have you ever seen so many vows in your life? Now remember, if you've listened to that introduction to this series, you'll know that thou is not the formal term. That's you. It sounds backwards, I know. Thou is informal, and sometimes it's even disrespectful. It's definitely something you use towards someone who's of lesser rank than you, but you can also use it to say actively mean things about someone. There's a line in a later comedy, Twelfth Night, where one of the characters says to the other, Thou thoust him some thrice. So if you want to really insult a guy, you should call him thou three times. And lo and behold, in this line, Aegeus calls Lysander thou three times. Thou, thou Lysander, thou. So he's pretty vexed, yo. And how has he bewitched her? By giving her rhymes with language, with poetry, and interchanged love tokens. Interchanged, in other words, exchanged, little tokens of love, notes, presents, that kind of thing. Trinkets. Maybe Aegeus found some of his. Thou hast by moonlight at her window sung with feigning voice verses of feigning love, and stolen the impression of her fantasy with bracelets of thy hair, rings, gauds, conceits, knacks, trifles, nosegays, sweetmeats, messengers of strong prevailment in unhardened youth. Oh, so he's going to list some of those rhymes and love tokens. So Lysander has by moonlight, again, there's that moon again, this has happened at night, outside her window sung with feigning voice. Feigning means deceitful or pretending. We sometimes use that word feign today. But some texts have a little pun in here. They spell feigning differently the first time. They spell it F-A-I-N-I-N-G instead of F-E-I-G-N-I-N-G. And feigning in that other spelling can mean soft. So you've used a soft voice to pretend to love her. But either way, it's a cool repetition. So those are the verses and stolen the impression of her fantasy. That word fantasy is going to become incredibly important in this play, so let's get it out of the way now. It's not fantasy like knights and dragons. Fantasy and also the associated word fancy mean imagination. And sometimes even more specifically, the part of your imagination that makes you fall in love. And what has Lysander done to Hermia's fantasy? He's stolen the impression of it. Impression is a physical impression. You know those signet rings, those seals that you use to mark wax with your family seal? They make an impression in the wax. So Lysander has made an impression in her imagination, in her love. But not just that, he's stolen it. It's a secret mark. So without her father knowing, he's gone behind his back and stolen that impression. And what are the love tokens he's used to do that? Bracelets of thy hair, which for a while was a very popular gift. You'd give someone a bracelet made out of your hair. I think it's weird, but that's just me. Rings, gauds. We still have that term gaudy, so these sort of gaudy, fancy objects. Conceits, which is another way to say sort of trinkets or baubles. Knacks, we still have that word knickknacks, you know, junk. 
trifles, which is another way to say like a meaningless little token. That meaninglessness is in the word trifle or trifling. So these are all kind of synonyms. Nosegays, which are these tiny little sort of sweet smelling bouquets of flowers. And then my personal favorite, sweet meats, no actual meat involved. This is just little candies, you know, Valentine's Day stuff. But to Aegeus, these are messengers of strong prevailment in unhardened youth. Prevailment means power or influence. So they act almost like messengers that influence her really strongly in unhardened youth. Unhardened means inexperienced or unable to resist. We talk about someone being soft. Unhardened is just another way to say that. So she hasn't experienced heartbreak yet, so she'll take all that stuff. In unhardened youth, in other words, in a young person like Hermia. He goes on, With cunning hast thou filched my daughter's heart, turned her obedience, which is due to me, to stubborn harshness. So with cunning, with all his plots and plans and gifts, he's filched her heart. Filched means stolen, but it's a much more fun verb than stolen. You filched it. What else has he done? He's turned her obedience, her obedience to her father, to stubborn harshness. Harshness meaning hard-hearted, like she can't change her mind. And there's that parenthetical in the middle, which is due to me. Her obedience is due, is owed to her father. Because at least at this time, as a young woman, you were obedient to your father. And then when you got married, you were obedient to your husband. So right now, her obedience is entirely owed to her father. But now he isn't getting any obedience from her. He's getting harshness. She won't listen to a thing he says. He goes on, And, my gracious duke, be it so she will not hear before your grace consent to marry with Demetrius, I beg the ancient privilege of Athens. As she is mine, I may dispose of her, which shall be either to this gentleman or to her death, according to our law immediately provided in that case. My gracious duke, there is that term again, be it so. In other words, if or supposing she will not before your grace, the duke again, consent to marry with Demetrius. So if she doesn't go through with this marriage, I beg, I ask for, I request the ancient privilege of Athens. And what's that ancient privilege? It's the right of fathers from ancient times in Athens to marry their daughters off to whoever they choose. So he's just asking for what is his right anyway. As she is mine, I may dispose of her. Not dispose like throw her out, but I may control her. I can make arrangements to her because she belongs to me. By the way, if you are a woman listening to this podcast, be glad you were not alive in 1595 because your father and your husband really could do whatever they wanted with you. And what does Aegeus want to do with Hermia? Which shall be either to this gentleman, in other words, to Demetrius, or to her death. Ooh, harsh. Immediately provided in that case. So the immediately modifies death. So in other words, she's going to go to her death immediately, according to our law provided in that case. So according to Athenian law, in the case of a young woman who won't marry who her father wants, she goes to her death. And that phrase provided in that case is standard legal boilerplate. It's language you'd see in a lot of different contracts or laws. So Theseus takes that long screed in and he turns to Hermia. He says, what say you, Hermia? But of course, he doesn't actually let her finish because he has a warning. He says, be advised, fair maid. Like, take this under consideration, beautiful maid. Maid being a young lady or even a virgin. And what is he advising her? To you, your father should be as a god, one that composed your beauties, yea, and one to whom you are but as a form in wax by him imprinted, and within his power to leave the figure or disfigure it. Yeah, this is kind of the situation women were in. Your father should be as a god to you. And how is he like a god? One that composed your beauties, in other words, created the way you look, you know, just genetically speaking. Yea, yes, and not only that, one to whom you are but as a form in wax by him imprinted. So you're nothing but a wax figure imprinted, formed by him. And actually, we just saw this same image in Aegeus' speech, where he talked about Lysander putting his impression in Hermia. Something a little sexual there, if you ask me. And actually, what Theseus says here is that the impression is by the father. So he composed you, he imprinted you, and it's within his power to leave the figure. In other words, to leave that form, you, as it is, 
or to disfigure it. Disfigure means destroy it or change the shape of it. So he's literally all powerful over her. He can do whatever he wants to her. And there's that cool comparison of figure and disfigure. Well, thanks for all the help, Theseus. God. But he is surprisingly nice to her. He says, Demetrius is a worthy gentleman. And for the first time, finally, after all these men are arguing over her fate, Hermia pipes up. She says, so is Lysander. But Theseus immediately jumps into her verse line and ends it for her. He says, in himself he is. But in this kind, wanting your father's voice, the other must be held the worthier. So she says Lysander's a worthy gentleman too. And Theseus immediately jumps in and says, in himself he is. Yeah, out of all context, he's totally as worthy as Demetrius. But in this kind, in other words, in this respect, that he's wanting, that he's lacking your father's voice, your father's support. So just for that one fact, the other, Demetrius, must be held the worthier, has to be considered more worthy. So it's not Lysander's fault and it's not your fault. Your dad's made up his mind. And Hermia's pretty crestfallen. She says, I would my father looked but with my eyes. I would means I wish. I wish my father could see as I do. It's a pretty cool image. But also those eyes are going to become maybe the most important word in this play. With the possible exception of dream, you're going to see references to eyes and vision and sight all over this play. And believe me, I will be pointing them out when they show up. And Theseus takes her words and he turns them around. He says, rather, your eyes must with his judgment look. And as you may remember, if you've listened to the introduction, actors at this time had cue scripts, which is to say all they got was the last word or two of the previous person's line as their cue. So often that last word or two is what gives you your line. So her last word is eyes. And he says, no, your eyes must with his judgment look. It's almost an example of wit, even though it's in a very serious situation of comic wit, which we're going to see some of later in the play, where you take someone's words and you spin them around to mean what you want to mean. So it isn't Aegeus' job to look through her eyes. Unfortunately, it's her job to look through his, through his judgment. But she's not satisfied. She says, I do entreat your grace to pardon me. Entreat is an even stronger word than pray or beg. This is like beg on your knees, entreat. I entreat your grace to pardon me. For what? For what I'm about to say. She says, I know not by what power I am made bold, nor how it may concern my modesty in such a presence here to plead my thoughts, but I beseech your grace that I may know the worst that may befall me in this case if I refuse to wed Demetrius. So she doesn't know what power it is that makes her so bold to speak out like this, because young women did not generally speak to powerful people at all, let alone this openly. And she also doesn't know how it may concern her modesty. Concern means befit, like befitting to her modesty, because this young woman should be behaved really well. To plead my thoughts, in other words, to express my thoughts in such a presence here, presence like royal presence. So she may get a bad reputation from talking like this, but she has to know. She says, I beseech your grace, which is an even stronger version of entreat. I beg you that I may know the worst that may befall me. Befall means happen to me. In this case, if I refuse to wed Demetrius. So if in fact, I won't marry this guy who my father wants me to marry, what's the worst that can happen to me? And Theseus is like, well, you asked lady. He says, either to die the death or to abjure forever the society of men. Gulp. So either you'll die, like her father asked for, or abjure forever. Abjure means to swear off or renounce the society of men, the company of men. In other words, she'd have to go become a nun, never hang around men again. So which is it going to be, death or none? So finally, Theseus sums it up. He says, therefore, fair Hermia, question your desires. Know of your youth. Examine well your blood, whether, if you yield not to your father's choice, you can endure the livery of a nun. For I, to be in shady cloister mewed, to live a barren sister all your life, chanting faint hymns to the cold, fruitless moon. I love that phrase, question your desires. So you have to really ask this question about your sort of youthful desire. Know of. In other words, ask your youth or learn from your youth because youth is very passionate. So you're going to have to ask your youth whether you can put up with this. Examine well your blood. 
Blood is another way to say youthful passion, especially sexual passion, whether you can endure the livery of a nun. Livery means uniform or clothing, but here it stands in for the life of a nun. So can you put up with that if you don't yield to your father's choice, if you don't marry Demetrius? Is that something that someone as young and passionate as you can do? So if you become a nun, what does that mean? For I, in other words, forever, to be in shady cloister mewed. Cloister usually refers to a convent or just to the concealed walkway in a convent so nobody can see them. And I like that word mewed. Mews are usually stables, but mute here means cooped up in a cloister. And why is it shady? Because a cloister is covered. So are you okay to be sort of stowed away, never see men for the rest of your life, maybe not even see the sun very much? To live a barren sister all your life. Barren, which is to say childless, chaste. Sister, another way to say none. Are you okay with living that all your life? I like that live at the beginning of the line and life at the end. And what else will this life entail? One more thing, chanting faint hymns to the cold, fruitless moon. It's a beautiful image. Cold isn't about temperature here. It means chaste, virginal, and fruitless being the opposite of fruitful. So another way to say barren or sterile. And this is one of the associations with the moon is of chastity. And the goddess Artemis, who rules the moon, is also sort of famously chaste. And she has these virgins who are dedicated to her. She has essentially a set of nuns who worship her. So her job would be to chant these faint hymns to the moon. Does that sound like a fun life to you? I also really love the sound of this line because in iambic pentameter, it would be chanting faint hymns to the cold fruitless moon but it doesn't sound like that it's chanting faint hymns to the cold fruitless moon you see how many stressed syllables there are in that and it really draws out that life and theseus goes on he says thrice blessed they that masters sow their blood to undergo such maiden pilgrimage but earthly or happy is the rose distilled than that which withering on the virgin thorn grows, lives, and dies in single blessedness. So thrice blessed, three times blessed, are those people who can master their blood. In other words, who can control their passion, especially that sexual passion, to undergo such maiden, such virginal pilgrimage. And this is an important thing to say when the queen at the time has made a cult out of her virginity, even if she may or may not actually have been a virgin. Like, if you can pull that off, great. That's awesome. But, he says, earthly or happy is the rose distilled. And distilled means that its perfume is captured. So roses are only in flower for a short amount of time. So that rose whose perfume is used is happy in an earthly or a more tactile way than that which, than the rose that withers on the virgin thorn. So it's still sitting on that thorn bush, withering away, not used, not smelled, not made into perfume by anyone. It just withers there. It grows, lives, and dies in single blessedness. So it spends its whole life alone. And again, that's blessed if you can pull it off. See blessed at the beginning and blessed at the end of that thought. But it's not a great way to live. So he's really testing her here. Is this what you want? And she takes her cue directly from his language. She echoes his verb. She says, so will I grow, so live, so die, my lord, ere I will yield my virgin patent up unto his lordship, whose unwished yoke my soul consents not to give sovereignty. So yeah, I'm going to grow, live, and die in single blessedness, ere before I will yield my virgin patent up. A patent is like a title, so I'm not going to give that up unto his lordship. And here she's talking about Demetrius, who's unwished yoke. Unwished means that I don't wish for it. And yoke here means his marrying her, but it's literally like a beast of burden. I'm not going to let him put a yoke on me and have me plow his field like some ox. So my soul consents not. My soul doesn't consent to give sovereignty, to give control over me to Demetrius. So before I'd let him have control over me, I would die a virgin. Them some strong words. And Theseus gives her a moment. He says, take time to pause. And by the next new moon, the sealing day, betwixt my love and me for everlasting bond of fellowship, upon that day either prepare to die for disobedience to your father's will, or else to wed Demetrius as he would. 
or on Diana's altar to protest for eye austerity and single life. So take time to pause, take a minute. And by the next new moon, which we found out was four days from now at the beginning of the scene. And what else did we find out about it? That it's the sealing day. In other words, the day that we sign a marriage contract betwixt, between my love and me, between him and Hippolyta, for everlasting bond of fellowship. A bond is another way to say a contract. But he doesn't say marriage, he says fellowship. It almost sounds like partnership, which is an oddly egalitarian way for someone to talk at this time. Especially compared to that image of a yoke, which she just used to describe marriage. But he says, upon that day, either prepare to die for disobedience to your father's will, that's option A, not a great option, or else, option B, to wed Demetrius, as he would, as he wishes. And the he here is probably her father, Aegeus, though I'm sure Demetrius also wishes it. Again, not a great option. Or option C, on Diana's altar. Who is Diana? Diana is the Roman goddess of the moon and virginity. In Greek, she's known as Artemis. Importantly, she's also associated with the hunt. And to a certain extent, the Amazons. But you'd have to go to her altar, to her temple, to protest, which here isn't like, I protest against your action. Here it means proclaim or declare or even take a vow. And what vow would she be taking at the altar? For I, forever, austerity. Austerity being the vow of poverty and single life. So she has four days to decide. Is she going to die? Is she going to marry someone she doesn't love? Or is she going to become a nun forever? Not a lot of great options here. And of course, Demetrius knows which one he wants, and he thinks it's crazy that she'd want to die or become a nun. He says to her, relent, sweet Hermia, and Lysander, yield thy crazed title to my certain right. So relent, just give up, sweet Hermia. And then he turns to Lysander, he says, yield thy crazed title. It's a great phrase. We're used to the word crazed meaning like insane, but it comes from a word that means shattered. So here it really means like it's flawed or unsound. And title is like a claim of ownership. So yield, give up your claim to my certain right. Certain means it's already been decided. I already have the right to marry her. Just forget it, buddy. And Lysander has a quick comeback. He says, you have her father's love, Demetrius. Let me have Hermia's. Do you marry him? And do you is just the imperative form of you. Like, why don't you marry Aegeus? You know he loves you, whereas Hermia loves me. That's a good joke, but Aegeus is having none of that. He says, scornful Lysander, true he hath my love. And what is mine, my love shall render him. Scornful means mocking or like smart aleck. Yeah, it's true. I love him. And my love for him shall render him. In other words, will give to him what is mine. And he goes on, and she is mine. And all my right of her, I do estate unto Demetrius. In fact, Hermia belongs to me, which at this time, daughters did belong to their fathers legally. All my right of her, all my right over her, I do estate. I pass down, almost like in a will, unto Demetrius. I give my right over her to her husband. And in this case, her only husband's going to be Demetrius. It's my decision, not yours. But Lysander doesn't accept that answer. He says, I am my lord as well derived as he, as well possessed. And the lord he's talking to here could be Theseus. It could be Aegeus for that matter. But he argues... I'm as well derived as he is. Derived meaning descended. Like I come from as good of a family as Demetrius does. And my family is as well possessed. In other words, it has property or possessions. So we're social equals. But he says, my love is more than his. And then he basically repeats himself, but in different language. He says, my fortunes every way is fairly ranked, if not with vantage as Demetrius's. So my fortunes, my lot in life, or even my possessions are in every way as fairly ranked, as well measured. In other words, they're equal to Demetrius's, if not with vantage, if not even more than, even better than Demetrius's fortunes. And, which is more than all these boasts can be, I am beloved of beauteous Hermia. So beyond all this stuff about fortunes, what matters is I'm beloved of, and the of means by, beauteous Hermia, beautiful Hermia. Notice, by the way, that's about four Bs in a row. You really get how emphatic his voice is there. Boasts can be, I am beloved of beauteous Hermia. 
And he says, why should not I then prosecute my right? Notice that Aegeus also used that term right. His right over Hermia, the right he was passing on to Demetrius over her. So Lysander is saying, well, I'm better than Demetrius. Why shouldn't I prosecute? Why shouldn't I pursue or make a claim on my right to her? And that argument may not work, but then he pulls out his trump card. He says, Demetrius, I'll avouch it to his head, made love to Nidar's daughter, Helena, and won her soul. I'll avouch it to his head. Avouch means I declare or I assert it to his head. The phrase we use today is to his face. In other words, out in the open, I will swear in front of everybody that Demetrius made love to Nidar's daughter, Helena. Made love not in the sex sense, but in the sense of wooing her, courting her. Oh, there's another character. So Demetrius actually is in love with someone else entirely, this woman named Helena. And he won her soul. It was successful. And how successful? He goes on. And she, sweet lady, dotes, devoutly dotes, dotes in idolatry upon this spotted and inconstant man. Dotes is a verb that means loves so much. It's going to be in this play a lot, as you might guess. And not only does she dote, she devoutly dotes. Devoutly being a religious word. Not only devoutly, she dotes in idolatry. And idolatry, as you may know, is when you worship an idol as a god. So she's not even religious about her love for him. She's pagan about her love for him. He is an idol for her. I love the sound of this line. Dotes, devoutly dotes, dotes in idolatry. So not only do you have all those hard D sounds, but you have that cool rhythm of devoutly dotes, dotes in idolatry. And what does she dote on? This spotted and inconstant man. He's not a leopard. Spotted means stained or blemished in his soul. And he's inconstant. In other words, he's not constant to one woman. So why is he spotted and inconstant? Because he swore he loved Helena, and now all of a sudden he loves Hermia. And you can hear it in the language too. Those soft O sounds, idolatry, upon, spotted, inconstant. It's all kind of, if you'll pardon the word, flaccid. He's really ragging on Demetrius. And Theseus says, I must confess that I have heard so much, and with Demetrius thought to have spoke thereof. Now wait a minute. He has to confess that he heard so much? In other words, I've heard as much. I heard that this had happened with Demetrius and Helena. Are we to believe that the Duke of Athens, a busy man, a sometime hero, is paying attention to the minor love affairs of the good families of Athens? But you know, exposition. Not only has he heard about it, and with Demetrius thought to have spoke thereof. Yeah, I was going to talk to Demetrius about this because he's been treating that lady badly. But, he says, but being overfull of self-affairs, my mind did lose it. So his mind was overfull, and it was too stuffed with self-affairs, in other words, with its own business. So it lost this Demetrius thing. It forgot it. Like, yeah, I was going to talk with this kid about this love affair of his because I don't have anything more important to do. But I guess I was too busy with all this saving the world and conquering the Amazons and getting married stuff. And I just forgot. I was going to talk to you about it. I don't know what happened. But no time like the present. He says, but Demetrius, come and come, Aegeus. You shall go with me. So he calls Demetrius and Aegeus away with him, which is very convenient for Hermia and Lysander to talk later. But anyway, and why is he asking them to go with him? He says, I have some private schooling for you both. Schooling being like counsel, but also in our modern sense, like I may want to school you on some things you did wrong in this case. I got to talk to you in person. And then he turns back to Hermia. He says, for you, fair Hermia, look, you arm yourself to fit your fancies to your father's will, or else the law of Athens yields you up, which by no means we may extenuate, to death or to a vow of single life. So as for you, beautiful Hermia, look, you arm yourself, not arm like put on armor, but prepare yourself to fit your fancies. There's that word again fantasies, fancies, your affections or your imaginations to your father's will. So you're going to have to shape the way you think and love to what your father wants to do. Also, you get a real sense of sharpness from the sound of those words, especially all those repeated F sounds, fit your fancies to your father's will. And if she doesn't do that, the law of Athens yields you up. 
in other words, surrenders you over, to death or to a vow of single life. And in the parentheses, he adds that he can't extenuate that law. Extenuate meaning lessen or change for the better. Like the law's the law. You better get in line or there's nothing I can do for you. So you're either going to die or you're going to live alone your whole life. And finally, he turns to his bride-to-be, Hippolyta. He says, come, my Hippolyta. And then this funny little line, he says, what cheer, my love? What cheer is an expression that might be used to say, how are you? Which may indicate that she's not totally wonderful right now. I've seen productions where she's pretty pissed off at the way that Hermia is being treated as another coerced woman herself. I've seen productions where she's bored with all this minor talk. And notice how that line starts stressed. Come, my Hippolyta. There's a sense of forcefulness to it. And then he turns to the other guys. He says, Demetrius and Aegeus, go along. In other words, come along with me. I must employ you in some business against our nuptial and confer with you of something nearly that concerns yourself. So I have to employ you. I have to use you in some business against our nuptial. Not next to. Here it means before or in preparation for our nuptial, our wedding. And confer with you, talk to you of something nearly that concerns yourselves. The order we'd use is probably something like that nearly concerns yourselves. But nearly here means not almost, but closely or personally concerns you. This may be the Hermia stuff, that stuff he was talking about before, the schooling. And you get that nice echo of confer with you and concerns yourselves. And Aegeus, good little soldier that he is, says, with duty and desire we follow you. Desire, not sexual desire, but desire like willingness. Like we're really willing to follow you. So not only is it our duty, but we also want to go with you. And you get that nice alliteration of duty and desire. And so everyone troops out except for Hermia and Lysander. You'd think they wouldn't leave those two alone, but oh well, it's important they have a scene together now. And he immediately turns to her and says, how now, my love? Why is your cheek so pale? How now another way to say what's up, but it rhymes, so that's cool. Why is your cheek so pale? Why are you so pale? How chance the roses there do fade so fast? How chance, how does it happen that the roses, in other words, the rosy color in your cheeks, fade so fast? Why is she pale? Why do you think she's pale, buddy? They just threatened to kill her or marry her to someone she didn't want to or send her to a nunnery. We also get that cool alliteration at the end, fade so fast. And she picks up on his roses metaphor and says, but like for want of rain which I could well beteem them from the tempest of my eyes. Why do they fade? Well, be like, probably, most likely, for want of rain, for a lack of rain. That's why flowers wilt, right? Which I could well beteem them. Beteem means grant or allow or bestow on them. From the tempest of my eyes. A tempest is a torrential rainstorm. So if those roses need a watering, she could easily provide them from her own tears. And the tears would run down her cheeks and water the roses there. It's a beautiful image. Notice we've had another use of eyes. And this is kind of cool. Lysander picks up on that word eyes and he says, I'm me, which is just a phrase of regret or sorrow. Like I'm sad about that. But you get that eyes, I. And then he tries to comfort her. He says, for aught that I could ever read, could ever hear by tale or history, the course of true love never did run smooth. For aught, for anything, basically everything I've ever read or could ever hear by, in other words, from a tale or a history, the course of true love never did run smooth. So everything he's ever heard or read about love never goes well. And it's a famous line, the course of true love never did run smooth. But look at what the image actually is. A course can refer to a path or sometimes a river or just a journey of any kind. And this journey never goes smoothly. There's always bumps along the way. And why doesn't it go smoothly? He says, but either it was different in blood. And blood means like rank or parentage. Like either the lovers came from different social ranks, so it wasn't acceptable for them to get married across class lines. And then watch what happens in the language. She interrupts him. She says, oh, cross, too high to be enthralled to low. A cross can be a trouble, or it can just be an obstacle in the way. 
too high to be enthralled to low. Enthralled means in love with. It literally means enslaved to. So a highborn person in love with a lowborn person. That sounds terrible. And then Lysander picks up his language again right away. He says, or else misgraphed in respect of years. So if it wasn't a class thing, it was misgraphed. Misgraphed means mismatched. It comes from the word graft, like plants that are grafted together poorly so they don't match up and the plant dies. And these are mismatched in respect of years, in other words, age. So you had an older person in love with a younger person, which wasn't appropriate. And then she pipes in again with the same O structure. She says, oh, spite, too old to be engaged to young. Spite can be annoyance or even like malice too old to be engaged to young. And this time, instead of enthralled, she uses the word engaged. Not in our modern sense of engaged to be married, but engaged like in love with, an old person in love with a young person. And he picks up his structure again. He continues right where he left off. He says, or else it stood upon the choice of friends. So if it wasn't one of those other things, it stood upon, in other words, it depended on the choice of friends. So friends thought it was wrong and got in the way of it. And Hermia pipes up again in that same O structure. She says, oh hell, to choose love by another's eyes. And there's that eyes image again. Like who would want to fall in love because of what another person sees? And that O structure, by the way, is going to come up later in the play. Helena, when she shows up, is going to start a speech, O spite, O hell, to echo that. And so if you look back over these last few lines, what you see is this kind of like shared catalog structure where Lysander lists off all the ways that love can be interfered with. And Hermia follows with a lament of that way. This is such a formal poetic moment at a really formal poetic moment in Shakespeare's writing. You'll sometimes hear this referred to with a Greek theater term called stichomythia. It just means alternating lines, and it has a very particular sound in the theater, like they're sharing a poem together. Anyway, Lysander continues in that same form. He says, Or if there were a sympathy in choice, war, death, or sickness did lay siege to it, making it momentary as a sound, swift as a shadow, short as any dream, brief as the lightning in the collied night, that in a spleen unfolds both heaven and earth, and ere a man hath power to say, Behold, the jaws of darkness do devour it up. So before she can jump in with another one of her oh crap lines, he starts going on and on with another thing that can go wrong in love. Or if there were a sympathy in choice, in other words, if there was an agreement or a harmony in their choice of each other, well then some war or death or sickness did lay siege to it. In other words, attack it. But it's a reference to that old battle technique where you surround a city and then just wait it out. So everything was going great for the lovers, but then some war or death or sickness attacked it. And the result of that was that it is as momentary which is a weird word, it just means momentary or fleeting, as a sound. The love is as brief as a sound that appears and goes away as suddenly as it arrived. And it's as swift as a shadow. So it can be our modern sense of shadow, like what's behind you on a sunny day. But it can also refer to, importantly here, a ghost or an illusion. And seeing as this play is going to get supernatural eventually, that's an important word to drop in there. And what's another one? He says, short as any dream. There's that word dream again. So love under these bad circumstances can be like a ghost or a dream. It can be that brief. And how else? Brief as the lightning in the collied night. Collied, not like lassie. It comes from the word coal. It literally means covered in coal dust. So the night is as black as someone covered in coal. So in a totally black night, the lightning shoots out very briefly and then disappears. This lightning that in a spleen, you may think a spleen is an internal organ, and actually that's where it comes from. This is this medieval and renaissance view of medicine, that your emotions came from specific organs, and the spleen was the seat of impulsive anger. So the lightning shoots out in that kind of anger. It unfolds both heaven and earth. So that brief flash of light unfolds, in other words, reveals or shows both heaven and earth. So if you're outside in a pitch black night and there's a strike of lightning, you can see everything brilliantly for just a second. 
And Araman hath power to say, Behold? So before someone can even say the word, Behold, look, there is the ground and a tree and the sky. The jaws of darkness do devour it up. That's an incredible image of darkness as a beast that closes its jaw over the world and everything is dark again. You also get that fun alliteration of darkness do devour. And then he concludes it with this one line, so quick bright things come to confusion. So quick, in other words, so quickly, as quickly as the lightning, bright things, things that are illuminated, come to confusion. And confusion can mean destruction or ruin, not confused like, where did I leave my pencil? So just like those jaws of night closing, that's how quickly the bright and beautiful things in the world, like love, are destroyed. This certainly turned pessimistic. I think he was trying to comfort her, but it's not going great. So Hermia has to be the one to actually comfort him. She says, if then true lovers have been ever crossed, it stands as an edict in destiny. Well, if it's then the case that true lovers have been ever crossed, in other words, always throughout history, have been crossed, have been interfered with, it stands as an edict in destiny. An edict literally being a declaration. And the declaration is lovers are always going to be crossed. So it's the destiny of everyone in love that they're going to run into trouble. And because of that, she says, then let us teach our trial patience because it is a customary cross as due to love as thoughts and dreams and sighs, wishes and tears, poor fancy's followers. So if it has to be that way, let us teach our trial patience. You have to sort of reorder this a little bit. Let us learn patience through this trial we're going through, through this test we're being made to endure. And why should they be patient? Because it is a customary cross. It's a common obstacle. It's the usual obstacle you go through. Lovers have been ever crossed. You get those hard C sounds, customary cross. And she says that cross is as due to love. In other words, it's as common to people who are in love as thoughts and dreams and sighs, wishes and tears. So all those things that traditionally go along with love. Notice one of them is dreams, helpfully for the title of the play. And what are all these things? She says, poor fancy's followers. Fancy here being that word for affection or love. And they're the followers. Followers are literally like attendants or servants on a lord or lady. So if you imagine love as a duke or duchess, thoughts and dreams and sighs and wishes and tears are all the servants who bring up the rear and do whatever love wants. So it may not be shocking, but actually Hermia proves to be much more level-headed and comforting than Lysander could ever be. He says to her, a good persuasion. Persuasion being like a principle. Like that's a good principle to have. If we're going to go through these things, it's just because everybody does. So she's actually made it easier for him. And he's so inspired by her that he gets an idea. He says, therefore, hear me, Hermia. Hard to say that five times fast, isn't it? Hear me, Hermia. What's his plan? I have a widow aunt, a dowager of great revenue, and she hath no child. Oh, it's another dowager. Remember the stepdame and the dowager at the beginning of the play? Well, this is an actual one. He has a widowed aunt who is a dowager. In other words, a widow who inherited her husband's property. And she has great revenue. She actually has a lot of money. And luckily enough, she doesn't have a child. I like where this is going. He continues, from Athens is her house remote seven leagues. And she respects me as her only son. Remote here means distant or away from. So her house is seven leagues away from Athens. And a league is a distance. Literally, it's about three miles. So maybe she lives about 20 miles away. But there's also a sense that seven leagues is an expression, just meaning a good distance away from here. And lucky for us, this childless rich aunt respects me. In other words, considers or regards me as her only son, which is to say, I'm going to get all that money when she dies. And this is his plan. There, gentle Hermia, may I marry thee. And to that place, the sharp Athenian law cannot pursue us. So you see the hard stress at the beginning of the line there? It really turns the momentum of the speech forward. There, I'm going to marry you. And to that place, there, the sharp Athenian law, sharp meaning severe or merciless, almost like the law is a sword. The law can't pursue us there. Maybe it's somebody else's territory. And he continues, if thou lovest me, then steal forth thy father's house tomorrow night, and in the wood, a league without the town, 
where I did meet thee once with Helena to do observance to a morn of May, there will I stay for thee. So if you love me, then steal forth. And what's being stolen? Well, she's stealing herself, essentially. Escape from your father's house tomorrow night. And in the wood, and this is the first we hear of it, that there are woods a league outside of the town. Without doesn't mean lacking. It means outside, the opposite of within. So there's apparently a woods about three miles outside of Athens. And where in the woods? Where I did meet thee once with Helena to do observance to a morn of May. So apparently sometime in the past, Lysander and Hermia and Helena, remember her, the girl Demetrius was in love with before he cast her over for Hermia? Apparently sometime in the past, they met up to do observance to a morn of May. What's this about? Okay, so these rites of May were these celebrations they held in England. They definitely originated as pagan because they marked the return of spring and fertility. It's kind of funny to see these English traditions in what is ostensibly an ancient Greek play. And because this was a celebration of spring and fertility, this could be a time when people would sort of run off into the fields, and maybe sometimes something of a sexual nature would take place. And this is one of many references in this play to the May Rites, which is funny because this is a play dedicated to Midsummer. It's in the title, after all. And Midsummer is a totally different celebration. It happens in June, and it marks the solstice. And the way you mark it is usually with bonfires, and it's very closely associated with magic, which is one of the reasons there are fairies in this play, because Midsummer is associated so strongly with magic. And what Shakespeare does in this play is kind of squash those two observances together. I guess he figures, you know, it's like a month or two apart. No one will notice. So there's kind of a lot of conflation of these May rites and the celebration of Midsummer. Anyway, digression over. So in the place where they used to do those May rites, there will I stay for thee. And stay just means wait. And notice again that first syllable stress on there. It really knocks it home. And notice it's a short line. It's not a full iambic pentameter line because she finishes it. She says, my good Lysander, she jumps right on it. I swear to thee by Cupid's strongest bow, by his best arrow with the golden head, by the simplicity of Venus's doves, by that which knitteth souls and prospers loves, and by that fire which burned the Carthage queen when the false Trojan under sail was seen, by all the vows that ever men have broke, in number more than ever women spoke, in that same place thou hast appointed me, tomorrow truly will I meet with thee." Wow, that really escalated fast. You may have noticed, by the way, that all of a sudden the play is rhyming. And it's really at that moment of Hermia's passion that her language suddenly catches fire and starts to rhyme. And most of the rest of the scene will rhyme. And a lot of the rest of the play will rhyme. So it's as though the volume of the love has been turned up so much that suddenly the poetry has gone berserk too. So, I swear to you by Cupid's strongest bow. Cupid, of course, being the Roman god of love, the one who shoots arrows into people to make them fall in love with his strong bow. And what else does she swear by? By his best arrow with the golden head. Did you know that Cupid actually had two arrows? He has a sharp gold one, which he shoots into people's hearts to make them fall in love. And he also has another one, the one no one talks about, which is a dull lead one, which I guess just thumps you in the chest and makes you not love people. Cool, right? So she swears by the love one. Okay, these are really nice images. By the simplicity of Venus's doves. Oh, Venus's doves. They're so simple. Simplicity just meaning innocence or sincerity of Venus's doves. Venus was the goddess of love, and she was usually depicted with doves, which as a bird are known to mate for life. They're very gentle. They care for their young. So they were sort of the symbol of pure love. Oh, great. And then she swears by another lovely thing, by that which knitteth souls and prospers loves. So by that, maybe by love, that knitteth souls, what literally knits together human souls, what joins them together, and prospers loves, whatever it is that makes love succeed. Okay, I like where this is going. And what else? By that fire which burned the Carthage queen. Wait a minute. Why are we talking about burning queens now? We were just swearing by doves and junk. Who is this Carthage queen? 
It is Dido, Queen of Carthage. In that old Roman poem, the Aeneid, this Trojan prince Aeneas shows up on her shores and they fall in love. And then he kind of gets called away to go found Rome. So he's sworn all this love to her. And then he ups and leaves her in the middle of the night. And she proceeds to stab and burn herself when the false Trojan under sail was seen. The false Trojan being Aeneas, who swore one thing and did another, when he was seen under sail. In other words, when he was seen sailing away, she killed herself pretty spectacularly. So she was swearing by all these beautiful things, and now all of a sudden it seems like doubt is creeping into her mind, and she's starting to swear by things that are about the betrayal of love, and about one lover swearing something and then not showing up. But I'm sure by the next swearing line, Hermia will go back to good stuff. By all the vows that ever men have broke, okay, I was wrong, She's swearing by every vow that a man has ever broken to a woman. This really turned dark fast. And all those broken love vows by men, she says, are in number more than ever women spoke. So men have actually broken more vows than women have even made. So you really get a sense that she's starting to doubt whether he will show up. Or she's using these oaths as a way to really get home to him that he should keep his word to her. Because remember, if she runs away and he's not there, she's just given up her entire life for nothing. Anyway, she swears by all those things, in that same place thou hast appointed me, so in the very place that you assigned to me, that you established for us to meet, tomorrow truly will I meet with thee. Truly meaning faithfully, like I swear I'm going to do it. And he listens to all of that and he says, keep promise, love. He may be a little overwhelmed by all those images. And conveniently enough for him, oh look, here comes Helena. So finally we get the fourth corner of our love square, which is a lesser known cousin of the love triangle. And remember, Hermia and Helena are old friends. Hermia immediately turns to her and says, Godspeed, fair Helena, wither away. So we immediately know what Helena is doing. She's not just coming in. Because Godspeed is something you say to someone who's departing on a journey. It literally means, may God give you success on your journey. Wither away. In other words, where are you going away to? So she is rushing off somewhere. She may not even see them. And what is Helena's cue? It's not any of that Godspeed or wither away stuff. She says, call you me fair? So she picks up on the fact that Hermia called her fair. She's very sensitive to that one thing. Beautiful. Call you me fair? That fair, again, unsay. So do you call me fair? Fair can mean beautiful, but it can also mean like fair-haired. You'll often see productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream that go out of their way to make the four characters look as different as possible. I highly recommend this. Because otherwise, it's easy to get them all confused because of all the weird interactions. So sometimes they'll cast Helena as blonde and Hermia as a brunette, for example. But anyway... She says, you call me fair? That fair, that word fair, again unsay. Not a thing you can do, unsay something. Again means, like, take it back. And why is this her reaction? She goes on, Demetrius loves your fair. He loves your kind of beautiful. Oh, happy fair. Remember, happy isn't joyful, it's lucky. You're lucky that you're his kind of beautiful. She says, your eyes are lodestars, and your tongue's sweet air, more tunable than lark to shepherd's ear, when wheat is green, when hawthorn buds appear. She suddenly goes into all these natural images. Your eyes are lodestars. A lodestar is a star that a traveler uses to guide them, especially the North Star, which is what sailors usually used. So she's saying that Hermia's eyes are like a guiding star to him. And there's that word eyes again, those magical eyes that draw everyone. And she goes on, and your tongue's sweet air. Air is a way to say tune or melody or music. It is more tunable than lark to shepherd's ear. Tunable means tuneful or melodious or beautiful sounding. It's more tuneful than lark. The lark is the sweetest songbird of morning. It's the first most beautiful song the shepherd hears when he takes his sheep out. So her song is more beautiful than the lark song is to a shepherd when wheat is green. When is wheat green? First thing in the spring, when it's just starting to grow. When hawthorn buds appear. 
Um, a hawthorn is a dense bush. And what's relevant to us is that the branch and the berries of a hawthorn were sometimes carried in May Day celebrations. So these are all symbols of spring. Notice also those long E sounds when wheat is green and the hawthorn buds appear. That's how beautiful Hermia is to Demetrius. She's like spring to him. And then Helena comes up with this very odd image. He says, sickness is catching. Oh, we're favor so. So sickness is contagious. You can catch a sickness. Oh, we're favor so. I wish appearance was the same way. Yours would I catch, fair Hermia, ere I go. I would catch your favor, your appearance, like a disease, ere I go, before I go off. My ear should catch your voice, my eye your eye. I would catch the ability to speak like you, and for my eyes to look like your eyes, like a disease. My tongue should catch your tongue's sweet melody. And there's the melody of the tongue again, like the air she was talking about before. She wants to catch that too, because she figures if she looked and sounded like Hermia, then Demetrius would love her again. So sad. She says, Were the world mine, Demetrius being baited? The rest I'd give to be to you translated. So were the world mine, if the whole world belonged to me. Demetrius being baited, except for Demetrius. Like if I own the entire world except for Demetrius? The rest, everything else I own, I'd give to be to you translated. So if Demetrius was the only thing in the world she didn't own, she would give up the entire world to be translated into Hermia. And that's an incredibly important word translated. It's going to be used several times in the play. And it isn't always a language-based word. We think of translated as just being like translate from Spanish to Norwegian. But it actually comes from the Latin words for carried across, like literally moved from one place to another. So what it means here is transformation. I'd like to be transformed into you. That's how desperate she is for Demetrius's love. And she concludes, oh, teach me how you look and with what art you sway the motion of Demetrius's heart. Teach me how you look. Teach me to look like you. And with what art? Art can be skill or it can even be magic. You sway the motion. You control the inclination or the affection of Demetrius's heart. Like what is this magic you use that he loves you instead of me? And then there's this interchange between Hermia and Helena and you're going to recognize the structure of it immediately. Hermia says, I frowned upon him, yet he loves me still. She's like, don't blame me. I frown on him. I say, leave me alone. Yet he still loves me. And Helena interrupts. She says, oh, that your frowns would teach my smiles such skill. As in, I wish that your frowns, which make him fall even more in love with you, could teach my smiles how to make him fall in love with me. And Hermia says, I give him curses, yet he gives me love. This might be an example of what you'd call an antithesis. So I curse him, but all it gives me back is love, these two opposites. And Helena says, oh, that my prayers could such affection move. So if your curses make him love you, I wish that my prayers could make him love me that much. And Hermia has another antithesis. She says, the more I hate, the more he follows me. And then Helena breaks her pattern a little bit, since there's no O at the beginning. But she says, the more I love, the more he hateth me. So she takes Hermia's structure exactly, but it's all the opposite. So the more Hermia hates him, the more Demetrius follows her. But the more Helena loves him, the more he hates her. And what you've seen over those last few lines is another one of those catalogs like we had with Lysander and Hermia. We even had that same O construction at the beginning. It's that strange Greek word stichomythia, those alternating lines, but it's very conscious poetry. And finally, at the end of this, Hermia protests. She says, his folly, Helena, is no fault of mine. So you get those two F sounds, his folly and not her fault. And Helena picks up on that. The fault isn't hers. She says, it's none but your beauty. Would that fault were mine? The only fault lies with her beauty. And Helena says, would that fault were mine? I wish I had that same fault of being that beautiful. But good news, Hermia has a solution. She says, take comfort. He no more shall see my face. So if you think my beauty is a problem, I'm going to solve that. 
And notice those hard syllables at the beginning of that line. She's going to end this now. Take comfort. He no more shall see my face. Lysander and myself will fly this place. They're not going to fly away like birds. It's more like our word flee, like they're going to run away from this place and escape it. And then she has this really strange and dark little poem. She says, before the time I did Lysander see, seemed Athens as a paradise to me. So before I saw Lysander for the first time, Athens seemed like a paradise to me. And you have another one of those seeing or eyes images. You have the sound of see and seem. But also how strange is that, that Athens was awesome before she met the person she loves most in the world. And she says, oh, then what graces in my love do dwell, that he hath turned a heaven unto a hell. So that graces is sort of ironic. Graces here is like good qualities. So what good qualities are in Lysander if he's turned a heaven that Athens used to be into a hell? So she used to think it was a paradise and now she's escaping it. That's incredibly dark. It's another image of transformation, by the way, which is going to be everywhere in the play, that love has the power to take something beautiful and make it awful. And you thought this was a cute play about fairies, right? And now Lysander goes into even more detail, which is going to be a mistake, but he says it anyway. He says, Helen, to you our minds we will unfold. Not going to open up their skulls, that'd be weird. Our minds are like our opinions, or in this case, our plans. We're going to unfold them to you. We're going to lay them out or reveal them to you. Tomorrow night, when Phoebe doth behold her silver visage in the watery glass, decking with liquid pearl the bladed grass, a time that lovers' flights doth still conceal, through Athens' gates have we devised to steal. So who's Phoebe? The chick from As You Like It? No, Phoebe is another name for the moon. So when the moon beholds her silver visage, her face, in the watery glass, a glass is literally a mirror, so the moon's going to look down and see her face reflected in the mirror of the water. Again, more moon imagery. Decking with liquid pearl the bladed grass. It's a beautiful image, almost too poetic. Decking is short for decorating. With liquid pearl the bladed grass. Bladed just means it has a lot of blades. And what is all this stuff with liquid pearl? Well, it was believed at the time that the moon, which controlled water, also caused the dew to form on the grass and plants. So it's as though the light of the moon is going around and decorating all the blades of grass with dew, which looks like little pearls. It's a beautiful image. It's a little thick and gloppy, but I'll let you get away with this one, Shakespeare. And he goes on, tomorrow night is a time that lovers' flights doth still conceal. Flights meaning they're running away or fleeing, not that they're getting on an airplane. That's the time that still conceals it, still meaning always. So apparently when lovers run away, it's always at that time of night. So tomorrow night, through Athens' gates have we devised to steal. We've prepared or we've decided to run away. And steal has that sense of escape secretly, as though they're stealing themselves from the city. And because they're cute and they finish each other's sentences, Hermia says, And in the wood where often you and I upon faint primrose beds were wont to lie, emptying our bosoms of their counsel sweet, there my Lysander and myself shall meet, and thence from Athens turn away our eyes to seek new friends and stranger companies. So in that same place in the woods where you and I, upon faint primrose beds, faint means light-colored, and primrose is an early spring flower. So it's another reference to those rites of May. So we were wont to lie. Wont means used to. Emptying our bosoms of their counsel sweet. No weirdo, not those bosoms. Here it means hearts. So they would empty their hearts to each other of their counsel sweet. Counsel being their plans or even their secrets. So in that same place, there my Lysander and myself shall meet. And thence, and from there, turn away our eyes from Athens. Note it doesn't say turn away ourselves, it says turn away our eyes. So it's their looking which is doing this. And what are they turning their eyes to do? To seek new friends 
and Stranger Companies. Stranger Companies are literally foreign companions. There are some editions of this text that say Strange Companions, which is not a good rhyme, but it's a pretty accurate description of some of the people they're about to be hanging out with. And she concludes, Farewell, sweet playfellow. Playfellow just being a playmate from when you were a kid. So obviously they have a really long history together. And she says, Pray thou for us, and good luck grant thee thy Demetrius. So I hope you pray for our success, and may good luck give you your Demetrius. So she's genuinely wishing that Demetrius will fall in love with Helena. And then apparently this is going to be her goodbye to Lysander as well. She turns to him and she says, Keep word, Lysander. Notice those two stressed syllables at the beginning. They are deadly serious. Keep your promise to me. She's an intense lady. We must starve our sight from lover's food till morrow, deep midnight. Again, there's that image of sight, but it's in a weird mix of senses. We have to starve our sight. Can the eyes eat all of a sudden? We have to starve them from lover's food. What's lover's food? It may be the looks of the other person that you love. You also get the alliteration of starve our sight. There's something really serious about that. So they have to not see each other till morrow, until tomorrow, deep midnight. Not just midnight, deep midnight. And of course, Lysander is maybe a little freaked out by this again, and he just says, I will, my Hermia. And off she goes. And Lysander turns to Helena, who presumably he's known since he was a kid too, and he says, Helena, adieu. In other words, goodbye. It's a little formal. As you on him, Demetrius dote on you. In the same way that you dote on Demetrius, that you love him that much, I hope that Demetrius will dote on you the same way. So may Demetrius love you as much as you love him. And then Lysander exits, and for the first time in this play, there's one person alone on stage. And when there's one person alone on stage, you know what that means. It's a soliloquy. These are these internal moments when a character is speaking both to themselves and to the audience, and they really spill their guts. She says, how happy some or other some can be. Remember, happy doesn't mean joyful. It means fortunate. So some people can be so much luckier than some other people. And I guess we know who the other people are. It's Helena. Why does Hermia get all the good stuff? This is a pretty bitter way to start. She says, through Athens, I am thought as fair as she. Everyone in this city thinks I'm as beautiful as she is. But what of that? Demetrius thinks not so. What of that is like, so what? I don't care if everyone but Demetrius thinks that I'm beautiful. He will not know what all but he do know. In other words, he refuses to know the thing that everyone but him knows, which is to say that I'm beautiful. Notice, by the way, that every word in that line is a single syllable. It really sort of draws it out. It makes it very simple and very stark. And notice that contrast of will not know and do know. And she goes on, And as he errs, doting on Hermia's eyes, so I, admiring of his qualities. So as he errs, in exactly the same way he makes a mistake by doting on Hermia's eyes. There's those eyes again, not doting on Hermia, on her eyes. So in exactly the same way that he makes a mistake by being in love with Hermia, so I, I make a mistake too by admiring of his qualities. His qualities just being his characteristics or his abilities. So it's pretty masochistic. Like, why am I bothering to love this person? By the way, it may not seem like it now, but eyes and qualities rhymes, or did in Shakespeare's time, because pronunciation was different. And then she gets even darker. Things base and vile, holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity. So things base and vile. Base means low or wretched or terrible. So these terrible things, holding no quantity, which means having no real proportion to them, having no shape, or at least having no good shape, Love can transpose, which is another word like translate that means transform. So love can take these disgusting, shapeless things, and it can transpose them to form and dignity. Dignity meaning worth or excellence. So love can make something awful like Demetrius into something beautiful like Demetrius in her eyes. And then she has what is maybe the motto of the play. She says, love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. And therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. 
So actually the eyes that we've heard are the most important part of love isn't what's looking in love. No, love looks with the mind. So it transforms the eyes. And therefore that's why winged Cupid, the god of love, is painted blind. So sometimes you'll see paintings of Cupid where he's either blindfolded or actually just blind. And this is done to highlight how arbitrary love can be, that it feels like you fall in love with the wrong person or fall in love with someone for no particular reason or the wrong reason. And she goes even farther down that line. She says, nor hath love's mind of any judgment taste. So love may look with the mind, but not only doesn't it have eyes, its mind doesn't have even a taste, even a slight amount, a trace amount of judgment. So no reason, no ability to make a dispassionate decision. So if you thought its eyes didn't work, you should see its mind. Wings and no eyes figure unheedy haste. So any creature that has wings but has no eyes, figure represents unheedy haste. Haste is speed. And unheedy is like reckless. What it literally means is not listening to anyone. If love just has wings and no eyes, that's the exact image of something that's just rushing around, not listening to anybody. And she says, and therefore is love said to be a child because in choice, he is so oft beguiled. Because again, you'll see Cupid depicted as a child. Why? Because in choice, in other words, in his choice of who to put together in love, he is so oft beguiled. He's so often tricked or deceived. He always puts the wrong people together. As waggish boys in game themselves forswear, so the boy love is perjured everywhere. Remember, he's a boy, he's a little child. So in the same way that waggish boys, in other words, playful or mischievous little kids, in game, when they're playing games, themselves forswear, forswear meaning swear things falsely, make all these promises they can't keep. In the same way that those boys in game forswear themselves, so the boy love, in other words, Cupid, is perjured everywhere. Perjured means guilty of having lied everywhere in the entire world. And what does this have to do with Helena? Well, she says, For ere Demetrius looked on Hermia's eye, he held down oaths that he was only mine. So before Demetrius saw Hermia's eyes, and eye is just an archaic version of eyes, though it's useful because it rhymes with mine. Before he saw her, he hailed down oaths that he was only mine. Hailed down is a beautiful image. It means showered them down like a hailstorm, as though she was being pelted with his promises that he was only hers. But what happened? And when this hail some heat from Hermia felt, so he dissolved, and showers of oaths did melt. So hail is like a little ice ball, but as soon as it felt the heat of Hermia, you get those hard H sounds repeating, heat and Hermia. Well, then he dissolved, and showers of oaths, those hail showers of promises, melted away. It's cool to have those weather images in there. Those are going to become important once the fairies show up. But it's an incredible image that he hailed down his love promises on her, but as soon as there was a little heat coming from Hermia, all those promises melted away. And then she does what everyone in love has done and has been embarrassed to do. She does something stupid and reckless in the hope that it will make the person she loves love her. She says, I, I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight. So she spent all this time talking about how awful Demetrius is and how much he's hurt her and how unreasonable it is for her to love him. And then she thinks of a way that she can make him love her again. I'm going to tell him about the fact that Hermia is running out of the city. She's going to try and escape tonight. Then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. So once he hears that she's running away to the woods, he's going to follow her in there tomorrow night. So why is this her plan? Well, she says, And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. If I have thanks from Demetrius for this intelligence, in other words, for this secret information, almost like she's spying or informing, and I think she's hoping that the thanks will be his love, it is a dear expense. Dear means costly. So it's a costly payment to have told Demetrius this information. And why? Well, number one, because Demetrius is going to leave her and go chase after Hermia. I think her hope is that he'll come back. But also because she's betraying her friends. She's hanging Hermia and Lysander out to dry. Man, the things we do when we are in love with the wrong person. 
And then she ends her soliloquy with one final couplet. She says, But herein mean I to enrich my pain, to have his sight thither and back again. So she's trying to explain why she's doing it. Herein, in this action of informing, I mean to enrich my pain. Oh God, that is perfect. If you've ever loved the wrong way or the wrong person, enrich my pain. Oh, that really gets me down deep. And notice this goes back to that image of a dear expense. Enriching my pain means I'm going to make it even more painful for myself for a little while, all because I want to have his sight thither and back again. Thither means to there, in the hopes that he might return back again after he's figured out what's up with Hermia. And she doesn't want him. She wants his sight. There's that visual image again. Eyes, sight, vision. And that can be the sight of him or him looking at her. But it's an incredibly masochistic and true version of what this feels like. And it makes you forget for a second that this is a comedy. Because on some level, all these comedies start out with tragic beginnings. They just end well. This is a very common audition monologue, by the way. And usually they play it like it's part of a comedy. And I would love to see someone do it in the way the words lead, which is someone who knows exactly what they're doing, knows how wrong it is, and does it anyway, because that's how stupid love makes you. Gorgeous speech. And as we move into Act 1, Scene 2 of the play, you'll see what's going to become a pattern, which is a whole bunch of new characters enter the stage we've never met before and who are totally different from the characters in the previous scene. There are six new characters. We know from the way they're costumed that they are the complete opposite of the characters who just left the stage. They look like workers. They look lower class. And so after all these rich people problems, we're going to be experiencing something totally different. And the first one to talk is this guy, Peter Quince. He says, is all our company here? And then he gets a piece of advice from this guy, Nick Bottom. He says, you were best to call them generally, man by man, according to the script. Script is related to our modern word script, but it can also mean a list, almost like a passenger manifest. And as you can see from the way he starts this sentence, you were best, he's going to give a lot of advice. When he says to call them generally, that doesn't mean vaguely. Sometimes Shakespeare will use this word general to mean the general public. So it's that sense of publicly, call them out loud, man by man, according to the script, according to your list. And Bottom is going to be one of the major characters in this play. He's what I'd call a Kemp-style fool. Who is Kemp? Kemp is this guy, Will Kemp, who for the first part of Shakespeare's career played most of his comic leads. He left the company probably just after it moved into the Globe Theater, 1599, maybe 1600, for a side project. And that side project was literally a dance marathon. It's this wonderful thing called Kemp's Nine Days Wonder, where he just danced for nine days straight across the English countryside. It's one of the all-time weird activities. And after he left Shakespeare's company, he was replaced by another comic actor named Robert Arman. And you'll really see a difference in the styles of comic characters they play. So Bottom and also maybe Dogberry from Much Ado About Nothing are sort of prototypical Will Kemp fools. They're very blustery. They're always mixing up words. They think very well of themselves, but they're actually basically idiots. Kemp was a little bit of a notorious ham as well. There's some sense that he liked to ad-lib a lot and play to the audience. And Armin apparently was a better actor. So characters like Feste, the fool in Twelfth Night, or King Lear's fool. Most often they're making fun of others instead of being made fun of. And they have a little darker stuff to play. But Bottom is classic Kemp. Anyway, Quince takes his advice and he says, Here's the scroll of every man's name which is thought fit through all Athens to play in our interlude before the Duke and the Duchess on his wedding day at night. It's almost as though he's making them feel better because I'm sure better actors were available throughout all Athens. But he's telling them they were selected to play in this interlude. Technically, an interlude is like a short play, usually made to fill space between other acts. And now we see that it's actually linked to the information we got from Theseus at the beginning of the play, which is that they're getting married in four days. I like that phrase, wedding day at night, which is technically true. It's going to be the night of their wedding, but day at night is kind of hilarious. And again, Bottom can't let that go. He says, first, good Peter Quince, say what the play treats on, 
then read the names of the actors, and so grow to a point. And this is the first time we've actually heard one of their names, Peter Quince, who evidently is the ringleader. And what I'll point out as we hear more of them is that their names are all connected to their jobs. So Peter Quince is a carpenter, and Quince sounds a little like the word coins, Q-U-O-I-N-S, which are these little wedges used by carpenters. Anyway, so he's telling him to start with what the play treats on, what the play talks about or deals with, the subject matter, and only then to read the names of the actors. And so, in that way, grow to a point. In other words, come to the point of what you're talking about. And Quince is a little bit of a pushover, and he says, Mary, our play is the most lamentable comedy and most cruel death of Pyramus and Thisbe. Mary is short for I swear by Mary, in other words, the Virgin Mary. It's sort of a light oath. And then he gives this amazing title, The Most Lamentable Comedy. Obviously, that's an oxymoron, because you can't have a lamentable comedy. But this is the form of a lot of plays at the time. Both Titus Andronicus and Romeo and Juliet were originally published under the title The Most Lamentable Tragedy. And what's the name of this play? Pyramus and Thisbe. This is a famous star-crossed mythological couple. And you probably won't be surprised to learn that they appear in Ovid's Metamorphoses, that treasury of myths. They're sort of the Romeo and Juliet of Greek mythology. So Bottom hears that title, and he says, A very good piece of work, I assure you, and a merry. Like, oh yeah, 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 I know that play, that's a great play. But since he says it's a merry one, in other words, it's a hilarious play, he obviously doesn't know it. Because as you'll see, it does not end well. But this is classic Bottom trying to pretend like he knows what he's talking about. So after assuring all the other actors that it's great, he says, Now, good Peter Quince, call forth your actors by the scroll. Masters, spread yourselves. I like that phrase, as though they have to sort of spread out across the stage to get ready for the reading. And Quince starts the roll call. He says, Answer as I call you. Nick Bottom, the weaver? Remember that part about how their jobs match their names? Well, a bottom is a kind of spool used by weavers. It also works nicely that his name is Bottom because he's a total idiot. And Bottom hears his name, he's excited, he says, Ready, name what part I am for, and proceed. What part I am for here means what part I am set up to play. And Quint says, You, Nick Bottom, are set down for Pyramus. Set down literally means written down, but it's been decided that you're going to play Pyramus. And Bottom replies, What is Pyramus? A lover? or a tyrant. So if he doesn't know who Pyramus is, he obviously doesn't know this play. But that thing about a lover and a tyrant, those are two different role types. You may remember from the Clear Shakespeare introduction that most medieval and Renaissance companies broke down actors this way. So one actor would always play lovers, one would always play villains, one would always play the comic. So he wants to know which this lead role is. And Quince assures him, a lover that kills himself most gallant for love. And gallant means splendidly, or even showily, which I'm sure appeals to Bottom because he seems like he may have a bit of ham in him. But if he's going to kill himself for love, Bottom says, that will ask some tears in the true performing of it. Ask means require. It's going to require me to cry if I'm going to perform it truly. True meaning authentic or correct. And not only is he going to cry, he says, if I do it, let the audience look to their eyes. I like that phrase, if I do it, as though he hasn't quite decided whether to take the part or not. But it means if I perform it or if I play the part. Well, then the audience should look to their eyes. That seems impossible, right? How do you look to your eyes? And it's a real expression. Look to means take care of or watch out for. And the reason they'd have to watch out for their eyes is because they'd be so moved by his performance that they would start weeping. But of course, you can't look to your own eyes. And it's actually nice to see that eyes image, which is running throughout the play in very serious ways, used comically here. And now he starts to get really worked up. He says, I will move storms. I will condole in some measure. Move means to inspire, so I'm going to inspire these storms of tears. And on top of that, he says, I will condole. Condole means to grieve or lament aloud in some measure, which means a really large amount. And he gets pretty worked up, but he stops and says, to the rest. In other words, go on to the rest of the guys. Read out their names. But before Quince can do that, he says, yet my chief humor is for a tyrant. 
Chief humor means main inclination. Humor can also mean temperament. It's from that idea of the four humors, which are these temperaments that are connected to these weird bodily fluids and organs and stuff. And what he's saying is he may actually be best suited to play a tyrant, you know, the bad guy of the piece, usually an evil king. And he likes this idea. He says, I could play Ercles rarely, or a part to tear a cat in, to make all split. Hercules is actually his botching up of the name Hercules, you know, the famous Greek hero. There was a pretty popular stage story about the moment when Hercules goes mad, so he might have known that from seeing other plays performed. And he says he could play it rarely, not meaning occasionally, but exceptionally, outstandingly. Or he says, a part to tear a cat in. I love this phrase. I'm going to start using it whenever I can in my daily life. It just means acting up a storm. You know, in Hamlet, there's that line about tearing a passion to tatters. It's something like that, but, you know, more feline. It just means overacting or bragging of any kind. There's actually a, a later play I love called The Roaring Girl, which I totally recommend reading. And there's a character in it named Tearcat. And why is he named that? Because he's always bragging around town about how tough he is. He's always tearing a cat. And by the same token, he says he would make all split, like he would blow the place up with the strength of his acting. And then he goes into a little monologue. He starts, The raging rocks and shivering shocks shall break the locks of prison gates, and Phoebus's car shall shine from far and make and mar the foolish fates. And this is hilariously over-the-top writing. It's a parody by Shakespeare, either of sort of old-timey writing or just terrible writing in general. You see with those short lines and those constant rhymes. You also see alliteration gone wild in here. Raging rocks, shivering shocks, make and mar, foolish fates. All those double letters are very characteristic of old poetry. And Shakespeare's still using it in his way. He's just using it more subtly. But now is not the time for subtlety. What does that word shivering mean? It means breaking into splinters. You'll sometimes hear the word shivers used for little pieces. So that's what that means. And what is Phoebus's car? Well, Phoebus isn't someone, but it's Phoebus. Just like with Hercules and Hercules, he can't get his mythological characters right. Phoebus is the god whose chariot draws the sun. So the sun will shine from far away. And make and mar, those are opposites. Mar is essentially unmake, the foolish fates. You're going to see the fates mentioned a lot in this play, especially in these plays within the play. These are these three mythological figures who decide the fate of all people. So really, this section, which may be drawn from some imaginary play he saw, doesn't quite mean anything, but it has all the signifiers of meaning. So maybe Bottom is some big fanboy of the plays in town, and he fancies himself an actor, so this is his chance at last to act. Other than the fact that they're obviously workers, as we get from their names and jobs, and not professional actors, it's poetry like this that gives us a sense of how amateurish they are. It's like if the guys at the drugstore and the convenience store and the coffee shop all decided to put on a play together. So Bottom finishes his performance and he says, This was lofty. Lofty means exalted and awesome. This is his idea of good poetry and performance, in other words. But he's definitely done now. He says, now name the rest of the players. Players are just actors. But before Quince can start again, he interrupts him. He says, this is Erkley's vein, a tyrant's vein. Vein means style. It's just a little disclaimer. It's like, oh no, this is actually the Hercules style, that tyrant style I was talking about. A lover is more condoling. There's that word he used before, condole, grieving or poignant. Just so no one thinks that he thinks this is the lover style. Oh no, this is totally different. Is he done now? Quince tries to speak. He says, Francis Flute, the bellows mender? Ooh, he gets it out. I didn't know there was a job being a bellows mender, but that's awesome. Probably working for a blacksmith. The other thing you can do with a bellows is use it to play a church organ, which may be where his name comes from. That idea of a flute organ. It's also a really good name, Francis Flute. And Flute pipes up, here, Peter Quince. And Quince says, Flute, you must take Thisbe on you. In other words, you have to play the part of Thisbe. And Flute's excited. He says, what is Thisbe? 
A wandering knight? A wandering knight is like this idea of a knight errant, which is a really popular subject of these medieval romances. You know, it's this guy who wanders the countryside performing these acts of chivalrous bravery in the name of a lady. I guess that's what Flute has always wanted to play. And Quince, unfortunately, has to burst his bubble. He says, it is the lady that Pyramus must love. And Flute is pissed. He says, nay, faith, let me not play a woman. Faith is a very mild swear word. It's short for I swear by my faith. And why doesn't he want to play a woman? I have a beard coming. So he may not have a beard yet, but it's coming. It's possible Flute may be on the younger side, which is why he gets to play the woman. In Shakespeare's day, all the female parts were played by young men. So he may have a beard coming, but it's not here yet. The other way you'll often see this part cast is with someone enormous or someone with a very deep voice to make that contrast look more ridiculous. But Quince doesn't want to hear it. He says, that's all one. That's all one just means it makes no difference one way or another. You shall play it in a mask, and you may speak as small as you will. So don't worry about the beard. You're going to play this in a mask. Although I have to say, I have never seen this part played by someone in a mask. That would be pretty cool. And he says, you may speak as small, in other words, as softly or as high-pitched as you will, as you want to. But then Bottom can't control himself, and he says, and I may have my face, let me play Thisbe too. Like, I didn't know you could use masks. And I, in other words, if I can hide my face, well, then I want to play Thisbe too. And he demonstrates. He says, I'll speak in a monstrous little voice. Thisney, Thisney. Ah, oh, Pyramus, my lover dear, thy Thisbe dear and lady dear. So he's showing them how he can play both parts. I really like that phrase, monstrous little voice. It's another one of those oxymorons that he likes to use. Monstrous means extremely little, but you can't really think of a little voice as being monstrous. And he doesn't even get the name right, Thisney. And he starts acting out both parts opposite each other. But Quince is not having it this time. This guy needs to be controlled. He says, no, no, you must play Pyramus. And Flute, you, Thisbe. And Bottom is appropriately chastened. He says, well, proceed. So Quince has gotten that under control. And he goes on, Robin Starveling, the tailor. That's a really good name. His name is probably Starveling because tailors were supposed to be especially poor and as a result, very skinny. And Starveling says, here, Peter Quince. And Quince says, Robin Starveling, you must play Thisbe's mother. Maybe because he's skinny, he gets that part. Sometimes you'll also see him played somewhat effeminate. Kind of a lazy choice, but there you go. And then he calls out to the next guy. Tom Snout, the tinker. And why Snout? Well, it might refer to the spout of a kettle, because tinkers were guys who went around fixing metal objects. And Snout calls out, here, Peter Quince. And Quince says, you, Pyramus's father. In other words, you have to play Pyramus's father. Mind you, these are all characters we never end up seeing in the performance itself. Maybe there were rewrites. And Quince casts himself. He says, myself, Thisbe's father. And then, snug the joiner, you the lion's part. Snug is a great name for a joiner, because snug joints. And he's going to play the part of the lion in Pyramus and Thisbe. And with that, everybody has a part. He says, and I hope here is a play fitted. Fitted means cast. But Snug has a very important question before he's done. He says, have you the lion's part written? In other words, do you have it written down? He says, pray you, if it be, give it me, for I am slow of study. Pray you means I ask you. If it be, if it be written down, give it me, give it to me, for I am slow of study. In other words, he's not good at memorizing things. Probably not a lot of call for memorizing in the joining arts. But that's okay, Quince says. You may do it extempore, for it is nothing but roaring. You may do it, you may perform it extempore. In other words, improvisationally or spontaneously. Why? Because it's nothing but roaring. Lions don't talk. And Bottom senses an opening. He says, let me play the lion too. Oh God, here we go again. I will roar that I will do any man's heart good to hear me. There may be a little bit of a mismatch here. Can hearts hear? You'll see this a lot going forward. So people are going to love to hear him. And what else? I will roar that I will make the Duke say, let him roar again. Let him roar again. He's imagining glory for himself in playing all the parts. And Quince wants to let him down easy. He says, and you should do it too terribly. You would fright the Duchess and the ladies that they would shriek. 
and that were enough to hang us all. And meaning if, if you performed it too terribly, in other words, terrifyingly, you would fright, you would frighten the Duchess and the other ladies of the court, that they would shriek. And that were enough to hang us all. In other words, have us all hanged. If you make the ladies shriek, I guess they give you the death penalty? That seems harsh. And the other guys start freaking out. They say, that would hang us, every mother's son. It's a somewhat stupid argument, but he's just trying to quiet Bottom down. Bottom says, I grant you, friends, if you should fright the ladies out of their wits, they would have no more discretion but to hang us. Out of their wits, like out of their sanity or out of their minds. They would have no more discretion. Discretion is just another way to say good judgment. Like it would be good judgment for them to hang us. But good news, he says, but I will aggravate my voice so that I will roar you as gently as any sucking dove. Aggravate is not the word he's looking for. He's going to do this a lot. He probably means something more like alleviate or moderate. Aggravate is more like making it worse. Anyway, he's going to quiet down so that I will roar you as gently as any sucking dove. That is also not a thing. Maybe he means suckling, like a baby dove. But of course, birds are not known for lactating. And in the event, doves were supposed to be really gentle and lovely. So it's hard to imagine a lion roaring as gently as a dove. And not only that, he says, I will roar you and tour any nightingale. And tour means as if it were a nightingale. The nightingale being a sweet singing bird of the night. That's how beautiful his roaring is going to be. So he's still pushing this pretty hard. And finally, Quince lays down the law. He says, you can play no part but Pyramus. For Pyramus is a sweet-faced man, a proper man, as one shall see in a summer's day, a most lovely gentleman-like man. He's really appealing to Bottom's vanity here, especially his vanity about his looks. You know, sweet-faced and proper, which means good-looking. So as good-looking a man as you would ever see in a summer's day, a most lovely gentleman-like man. Gentleman-like as in upper class. And he finishes it with, therefore you must needs play Pyramus. Must needs means you have to. And this is probably as worked up as Quince ever gets. And finally, Bottom is appropriately chastened. He says, well, I will undertake it. But now that he's settled on a part, he has some questions. He says, what beard were I best to play it in? And Quince is pretty startled by this. He says, why, what you will. What you will just means whatever you want. I don't care about your beard. And Bottom has an idea already. He says, I will discharge it in either your straw color beard, your orange tawny beard, your purple and grain beard, or your French crown color beard, your perfect yellow. Apparently, he has a collection of beards at home. I will discharge it. In other words, I will play or perform the part in either your straw color beard. Your doesn't mean literally your. It's more like a straw color beard. Straw color, in other words, blonde beard. Orange tawny. Tawny is sort of brownish. So reddish brownish beard. Purple in grain, which is a beard that's been dyed red. I didn't know this was a thing. Or a French crown colored beard. And French crowns are a kind of coin. So a sort of bright golden beard. And he says, you're perfect yellow. Perfect just being another way to say perfect. Perfectly yellow. And Quince chimes in, some of your French crowns have no hair at all, and then you will play barefaced. Huh? Huh? Uh. It's cute when he tries to make a joke. In this case, it's a syphilis joke. Crowns are another way to say heads, not just coins. And in England, they used to call syphilis the French disease. And one of the side effects was that it made your hair fall out, which is why these French crowns have no hair at all. And then you'll have to play barefaced, in other words, clean shaven, because there's no hair in the beard. Not a great joke. Anyway, he says, but masters, here are your parts. Masters like sirs. Seems a bit formal for a bunch of workmen, but whatever. Here are your parts. Remember those part scripts, which are scripts that just have your lines and then the cues from the previous ones? And he has some instructions for them. He says, and I am to entreat you, request you, and desire you to con them by tomorrow night and meet me in the palace wood a mile without the town by moonlight. Entreat means to ask or even beg. So he has three words. He really wants them to do that. Entreat, request, and desire to con them. Con means memorize. 
by tomorrow night and meet me in the palace wood a mile without the town without means outside of it's the opposite of within have we heard about this place recently ah yes it is where lysander and hermia are going and we know now that helena is going to tell demetrius about it and he's probably going to be there too so after a whole scene of wondering where we are and what's going on we now start to see the connection they're going to end up in the same place at the same time and i guess they want a private place to rehearse and they all work during the day but it seems like the creepiest possible place to rehearse a play i don't know he says there will we rehearse for if we meet in the city we shall be dogged with company and our device is known so that's why they aren't meeting in the city because they'll be dogged in other words followed closely just like a dog follows right behind your feet as you're walking with company in other words with followers with other people who want to get in on this and our device is known in other words our plans known it's from that word devise i think he's overestimating the interest in this play from the general population but that's just me so that's that plan but then he says in the meantime i will draw a bill of properties such as our play wants so between now and then he's going to draw up a bill of properties which is just a list of props that you'd need for the play such as our play wants wants means requires and again he seems really worried about them showing up he says i pray you fail me not i pray you i ask of you i beg of you fail me not don't fail to meet me there but bottom reassures him he says we will meet and there we may rehearse most obscenely and courageously so it's like failure no we are going to meet and out there we're going to be able to rehearse obscenely again i think this is the wrong word he might be wanting to say obscurely in other words in a hidden or secret way he could be wanting to say seemly like in a proper way ironically the word obscene also means off stage in greek so it's kind of the worst word you could choose in every way but he says take pains not in our modern sense of pains but in the sense of make an effort you know really try hard be perfect maybe in the sense of perfectly memorized and he bids them farewell with adieu which is a very fancy french way to say goodbye i think he's getting really excited about his job here and the woods is pretty general so quince says at the duke's oak we meet this may be a particular large memorable tree in the woods but bottom gets it he says enough hold or cut bowstrings hold means keep your promise be constant to what you said you'd do in other words show up tomorrow night or cut bowstrings as you can probably tell from the phrase it's an archery term which means to quit or give up and it probably refers to the fact that either archers who had failed in battle had their bows destroyed or it might be even more likely is that if you were losing a battle and you were retreating as an archer you would cut the strings of your bow to keep them from being useful to the enemy but either way what he's saying is either show up tomorrow night or just quit the play and with that they all get worked up and they run off excited to memorize their lines well that's the end of part one of clear shakespeare midsummer night's dream come back for part two where we finally start to get to the supernatural parts which is why everybody comes to the show in the first place we'll meet even more new characters in the meantime i really appreciate it if you could help to make clear shakespeare possible go to clearshakespeare.com support and i hope you'll be able to kick in a few bucks to support this work i really appreciate it goodbye